Warning, this episode contains discussions of racism and xenophobia, as well as a brief mention of drug use. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Welcome, ladies and germs, and people of all genders, to Ah, Real Films, a podcast hosted by two siblings who speak about a different horror movie topic each week. And I gotta say, really excited about this topic today. We are be dis- we'll be discussing Lovecraftian horror, Ooh. which is a very <laughs> this is this is a little weird uh, not being in the same room. I don't. I think we've mentioned previously that. We will be recording remotely from now on. So I, now I just see Taylor's eyes on a digitized screen right now. <laughs> it's like a really poor webcam, too. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like someone maybe smeared a little shit on your webcam. But, <laughs> That's so um, mean. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, today we'll be talking about a very controversial topic, but one that has a huge influence on modern day horror, and that is uh, the works of H.P. Lovecraft, but specifically films based on... I would say our films are based pretty explicitly on H.P. Lovecraft, but I would also say a lot of modern horror... Annihilation comes to mind from last year, but a lot of modern horror takes from H.P. Lovecraft. I actually have an article that came out recently about a hot movie that everyone's talking about right now and its ties to Lovecraftian horror that I want to discuss at the end of the episode. So yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. We have so many articles to read on this episode too. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be extremely academic. Well researched. So dope. So dope. (laughs) Anyway, Taylor, what are you drinking today? We got, I I literally cannot see what you're drinking. So this is for the first time a genuine question. What are you drinking? (laughs) Well, um, Someone gifted Justin about a gallon jug of Tanqueray, or as my Ooh. old roommate used to call it, Tanqueary. So I am having a G&T. It's mm. very delicious. Very nice. Well, today I am drinking Stone's Delicious IPA, mm. a citrusy IPA with lemon drop and El Dorado hops. Oh, very that good. is bougie. I love it's that. It's very tasty. I'm really enjoying <laughs> it. But anyway, I have a few things here I want to read before we jump into our film selections. Do you have anything you want to say first, Taylor? I know. Talk about first before we get into it. Yeah, I think we will probably definitely address this topic, but... Curtis mentioned as soon as Lovecrafting Horror was his pick, um, and as soon as he mentioned it, he said, well, we're going to have to talk about what a terrible person H.P. Lovecraft is, and this is something that I like for us to address on our show. I think, you know, especially if you're a fan of older works or, or older authors or filmmakers, there were definitely things that were acceptable in the past that aren't acceptable now, and I think we still need to address those things. Um, on our show, I think it's difficult to be a fan of something that is problematic. But, but you know, for instance, I'm a fan of Rosemary's Baby. But I don't feel comfortable just blanket statement being like, I love Rosemary's Baby. I think it's really important to, like, confront these issues. And, of course, though, that being said, H.P. Lovecraft was shockingly terrible even for his time. I'm not saying, yeah. like, those things used to be acceptable. But you can't you can't really separate the art from... The artist, like a lot of yes, people wish to do. I exactly. mean, you have to confront these things, exactly. uh, especially with H.P. Lovecraft. And that's really what I hope um, our listeners take away from this episode today, which is that, yeah, I think it's totally fine to be a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. I would say you're a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft's works. But trying to separate, yeah, the art from the artist, that's impossible. You know, who we are comes through in our art. And I think it's just important to acknowledge that and to not come into a work of art without a critical mind. Um, And in fact, when I rewatched the film that I watched today, I saw some of those problematic elements that I maybe wouldn't have seen if I hadn't known it was like, say, a Lovecraftian, you know, inspired film. And I think it's just important because if you don't call those things out, you can come to accept them. And that's just not obviously what we want to do. So, Well, I think part of the reason, though, I wanted to do this episode, too, is that there's such an obvious influence of Lovecraft on so much horror nowadays. And I wanted to sort of discuss like, how people have taken what Lovecraft did and his ideas about horror his unique and 
crazy ideas about horror and made them something more progressive and made them something yeah. more acceptable for modern day. Um, but before I get into this, I do want to say I am, you know, I, I wish we could have someone on, someone who is a person of color or something that, you know, who could speak about Lovecraft from their perspective. I mean, we're both white people. So, you know, that is the perspective we're coming from. And we're going to do our best to sort of communicate these ideas. But, you know, hopefully when our podcast is a little bit more clout in the future, you know, <laughs> we could have someone on. We have um, tens of listeners. So yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I just want to clarify, it's not for, you know, we're not doing that as a, out of a place of ignorance. We're not trying, you know, we would love to have someone on to talk about these issues. And if any of our listeners want to email, you know, after they hear this episode, email us about this issue from their perspective, we would be more than welcome to discuss that on the pod in a future podcast. So anyway, with all of that said, um, let's talk about what is like Lovecraftian horror. I mean, basically, it's at its core, I guess, a fear of the unknown. I mean, all of his stories were, by and large, about, you know, you think of Call of Cthulhu, Shadow Over Innsmouth, Dagon, some of the classics are all about fear of the unknown. And, you know, he eventually developed like an ovoir that involved a lot of otherworldly creatures and monsters and undoubtedly terrifying, undoubtedly thought provoking and just a really unique version of horror. But on the flip side, what he was talking about in his works, the fear of the unknown, the fear of the other was black and brown people, immigrants, you know, Italians. Mexicans, African anybody who wasn't like a Anglo-Saxon, like male Anglo-Saxon person. Yeah. Exactly. So I um, wanted to. I, I received a uh, compendium of Lovecraft works from Justin Taylor's boyfriend over Christmas. It's called Tales of Horror. It's very very cool. And I wanted to first discuss how you know the people who revere Lovecraft and develop this compendium talk about. I was surprised to see that they even talked about race and Lovecraft even to begin with. So good on them for doing that. But let's see how they talk about it first. And I'm reading the introduction to the Tales of Horror Lovecraft uh, compilation. And they say, in some ways, Lovecraft's real boogeymen are people who aren't white and or don't speak English and people of good family who mix with the said immigrants. His solution is to round them all up. As author Alan Moore has commented, it is possible to perceive Howard Lovecraft as an almost unbearably sensitive barometer of American dread. Far from outlandish eccentricities, the fears that generate Lovecraft's stories and opinions were precisely those of white, middle-class, heterosexual, Protestant-descended males who were most threatened by the shifting power relationships and values of modern, the modern world. Yet, read another way, there is an almost implicit condemnation of such views in Lovecraft's works. The effect purebred narrators of stories such as Rat in the Walls are ultimately unfit, their mental architecture constructed excuse me, of the rigid atavisms of a bygone world. Confronted with the truth of a diverse, complex reality, their brittle sanity snaps. Lovecraft's protagonists are ultimately stand-ins for the author himself, a man who, let us not forget, married an immigrant Jew. More importantly, without his outdated worldview, Lovecraft wouldn't have been Lovecraft. As Lovecraft scholar Leslie Klinger has said, the author felt that he was surrounded by enemies and everything is hostile to him. If you take away the part of his character, that might make him a much nicer person, but it would destroy the stories. So essentially, these Lovecraft defenders say, well, we got amazing stories out of it. So it's kind of what we have to deal with if we want to have this horror. And I mean, I think that's the kind of the flip side of you can't take the artist out of the art. You know, I think mm -hmm. that that's a, that's a valid reading of Lovecraft's work because he had these fears and because he was this way, because he was a terrible person, he wrote about terrible worldviews, which are, in some sense, you know, as kind of a normal person reading these as like, you know, a not overtly racist or bigoted person, you read into it kind of what you, what your outsized fears are and like what your outsized horror is, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, but, you know, knowing his point of view it kind of makes it you know it makes it kind of uncomfortable because you know what he's what he's talking about so to me you know to me i still come back around to like it just makes me feel kind of like squeamish knowing what i know about him you know well, i i have another article here and that's a great segue because this article is called we can't ignore hb lovecraft's white supremacy and basically its argument is um and this is by excuse me by west house um of lithub.com and basically, the argument is, is not only 
the idea of Lovecraft, where he was coming from, make us squeamish and queasy, but it is actively bad. It has an, a, a real effect. And he uses the um, example of Darren Wilson's grand jury testimony, the, the killer of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, his, test, his grand jury testimony. And I'll, I'll read a little excerpt from this. It says, it should come as no surprise that a racist imagination possesses an uncanny ability to concoct the most outlandish and fiendish representations of minorities and immigrants. Pre-existing social hierarchies and political forces give those depictions life and validity. Darren Wilson's horror-ridden tale of the death of Mike Brown, delivered to a grand jury on September 6, 2014, shows one strain of the continuous thread of black youth enlivened in the racist imaginary as a monstrosity to be met with force. It is the tale of a child, if, uh, if child he may be called, whose presence and demeanor were so dangerous that the only solution was a bullet to the brain. I've never seen anybody look that, for a lack of a better word, crazy, Wilson testified. That is the only way I can describe it. It looks like a demon. That's how angry he looked. So it's, you, it's just another example, obviously, of how you can't separate the artist who created these works from the art itself, but it also shows you, you know, the threads that H.P. Lovecraft was working from to create his art, they continue on today. And I think when I read that excerpt from Darren Wilson, I'd never read his grand jury testimony until I read this article. It sent chills down my spine because you read a Lovecraftian story and I will read one, an excerpt of one uh, shortly here. And you see these threads, these, you know, what people think of kind of cosmic horror is kind of, what the language that he's using to describe this cosmic horror is kind of the language of racists, essentially. And it is, yeah, it's awful, it's uncomfortable. I agree with you. I actually um, was reading an article for my movie, which I'll probably circle back around to when we get into the movie discussion. But it has a pretty good example of cosmic horror, which is that cosmic horror is a realization that there are ancient, wholly inhuman creatures that exist in our own universe that do not care about us at all. Along with this is the fear of losing your humanity, succumbing to the whims, and sometimes even being engulfed by these interstellar behemoths. Behemoths, mm -hmm. sorry. Behemoths, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, and this is, an, this is an article written by Kyle Anderson. Um, it's on The Nerdist, and I'm not going to give the title now because I don't want to give away what my movie gotcha. is. Gotcha, um, yeah. But, you know, when you first read that, you're like, oh, it's about just monsters. It's about how we're afraid of the unknown, which I think is a very real fear. But if you are coming at it from a racist perspective, fear mm -hmm. of the unknown and fear of the different is fear of anyone who looks different from you. Mm -hmm. And taking that a step further is saying like, well, these people are going to take away my hum my humanity. You hear a lot of racists talk about how they don't want, you know, intermixing of the races and they don't want, you know, white people to marry black people, for instance. And I think that that's kind of where H.P. Lovecraft was coming from. Like the monsters mm -hmm. are just anybody different from him. And of course... When you read books by H.P. Lovecraft and when you see movies inspired by H.P. Lovecraft, obviously the monsters are monsters. Mm. They're not, you know, they're not Absolutely. human. But knowing that that was kind of his perspective just makes it kind of icky to me, you know? Yeah. You know, there is this obvious racist thread in his work, but it's also true that this work is like incredibly resonant to people up to today. And I was, I, I didn't want to just, you know, if we're going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, we're obviously going to talk about Lovecraft inspired work. So I wanted to figure out, you know, why is this so resonant to people? And I think one of the things, and this is a lot, what my movie's about is the fear of the unknown is so palpable to so many people and it applies so to so many different situations. And I think my film is a lot about, fear of the unknown and how that kind of just builds in your head and all this kinds of stuff. But I also watched an interesting YouTube video, as a matter of fact, and I won't go too far into it. I'll just, um, you know, if you anybody that's really interesting, interested in this type of stuff, I would uh, encourage you to um, look up this video. It's called How to Adapt H.P. Lovecraft in the 21st Century. And the guy who made the video, is his name is H. Bomber Guy, who's kind of like, he does like video game reviews from a leftist perspective, but he also does like videos like uh, cultural Marxism, a counterpoint and things like that. He'll, he does really great videos, but his theory about H.P. Lovecraft and he's uh, coming from an LGBTQ perspective, like he's noticed in you know his community how that H.P. Lovecraft is wildly popular in the LGBTQ community. And his theory is the outsider theory is that 
H.P. Lovecraft, a lot of his stories are about people who are outsiders and dealing with a hostile world as an outsider. You know, he says in the video, he felt that H.P. Lovecraft resonated so much with him because he personally had a fear of being an outsider in a world that could not understand him growing up as an individual who was LGBTQ. He said, you know, he would immerse himself in these books where he felt, you know, some sort of resonance with the characters in the books. And I just, I would really encourage people to go out and watch that video. It's about a 30 minute long YouTube video, but there's obvious an uncomfortable racist thread um, throughout H.P. Lovecraft's work. And I think it is, it influences racism to today. Um, and you only have to look at neo-Nazi stuff. People refer to H.P. Lovecraft all the time in that community. But it, it inspires uh, a lot of people today in the horror community, including people um, who are LGBTQ or other other different groups like that. And so, yeah, and I would say like the fear of the unknown might have been popularized by H.P. Lovecraft. And I definitely think that is a Lovecraftian horror type of thing. But I definitely don't think it's unique to H.P. Lovecraft. And no. I do think that films about fear of the unknown affect us quite deeply because in the, at the end of the day we are just seven billion people like hurling through space on a rock like in an infinite universe and i think fear of the un- unknown makes a lot of sense in that regard because there's more things in the universe that we don't know than we do know so yeah that's why it's a I very don't know. palpable fear yeah i think it's a very real fear and i think it's a fear that unlike other fears m- most people have you know mm-hmm. if not everyone So now we've kind of gone a little bit of background, and I wanted to take a little bit of an opportunity to read an excerpt from one of H.P. Lovecraft's stories, because I Reading Rainbow with Curtis. Yeah, everybody wants to hear my silky voice reading. (laughs) I mean, there's no doubt about that. So um, I think a lot of people are familiar with, like, Lovecraftian horror, but a lot of people are less familiar because, I mean, let's be honest, these stories are sometimes 100 years old and not the most easy to read or entertaining reads of, of, of all. So I did want to read it so people can get an idea of um, his style of writing yeah. and uh, all that stuff. So I'm going to settle in with my G&T. Yeah, enjoy your gin and tonic while I read this. So I'm reading <laughs> from the short story Near Atholotep, and I'm reading um, the last, let's see, two paragraphs here. Um, in the story, um, the narrator and some of his friends went to go see the eponymous Near Atholotep, who is some sort of uh, Egyptian kind of magician guy and he's going around the country putting on these spectacles and um you know they're like whispered rumors that he's doing something more than magic blah 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 so they go to see him and after they see him uh, is where we're picking up in our story <clears throat> i believe we felt something coming down from the greenish moon for when we began to depend on its light we drifted into curious involuntary formations and seemed to know our destinations even though we dared not think of them Once we looked at the pavement and found the blocks loose and displaced by grass, with scarce a line of rusted metal to show where the tramways had run. And again, we saw a tram car, lone, windowless, dilapidated, and almost on its side. When we gazed around the horizon, we could not find the third tower by the river and noticed that the silhouette of the second tower was ragged at the top. We then split up into narrow columns. Each of us seemed drawn in a different direction. Once One disappeared into a narrow alley to the left leaving only the echo of a shocking moan. Another filed down a weed-choked subway entrance, howling with laughter that was mad. My own column was sucked toward the open country and presently felt a chill which was not of the hot autumn. For as we stalked on out in the dark moor, we beheld around us the hellish moon glitter of evil snows. Trackless, inexplicable snows swept asunder in one direction only, where lay a gulf all the blacker for its glimmering walls. The column seemed very thin indeed as it plodded dreamily into the gulf. I lingered behind, for the black rift in the greenlit and snow was frightful, and I thought I had heard the reverberations of a disquieting wail as my companions vanished. But my power to linger was slight. As if beckoned by those who had gone before, I half floated between the titanic snowdrifts, quivering and afraid into the sightless vortex of the unimaginable. Screamingly sentient, dumbly delirious, only the gods that were can tell. A sickened, sensitive shadow writhing in hands that are not hands, and whirled blindly past ghastly midnights of rotting creation, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities, charnel winds that brush the pallid stars and make them flicker low. Beyond the world's vague ghost of monstrous things, 
half-seen columns of unsanctified temples that rest nameless rock rest on nameless rocks beneath space and reach up to dizzy vacua above the spheres of light and darkness and through this revolting graveyard of the universe of the muffled maddening beating of drums and thin monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable unlighted chambers beyond time the detestable pounding and piping wherein to dance slowly awkwardly and absurdly the gigantic tenebrous ultimate gods the blind voiceless mindless gargoyles whose soul is near Athalatep. the end <laughs> thank you thank you thank you wow uh, that was you're a true thespian my my throat is very dry right now from reading that. Also, I feel like your cats were just meowing and shaking themselves in the background the entire time. They were scared. They were getting scared <laughs> of Nerithalatep. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So anybody who's, um, I guess, unfamiliar with Lovecraft, that's sort of his thing. The part I didn't read was his description of the Egyptian, uh, the swarmy Egyptian Nerithalatep is uh, quite racist and explicitly so. What? <laughs> yeah, so I would caution, again, caution anybody uh, who wants to read Lovecraft. I mean, obviously, that stuff is, uh, you know, I, we're talking about how racist he was and how it influenced his work. Oftentimes, it can be quite obvious when you read the work. So, um, but that is near a thought. That is, uh, you know, three-page yeah. story, if you want to read the whole thing, quite good. I think that that, you know, that story has a lot of themes, which I can definitely assure everyone we will be touching on as we discuss our individual films coming up here Uh um but if you want it we have been recording now for about 20 minutes uh which is the longest we've ever recorded without getting around to our films so if i was just gonna say please hop in like let's let's get started then yeah so we now that everyone has a background on lovecraftian horror what it is why it can be problematic a little bit of background on hp lovecraft himself as well as a simply riveting Excerpt uh, can I get another uh, round of applause, please? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I just like clapping into my mic for some reason. <laughs> I'm like such a child. Okay. I will be covering a very famous film by a very famous filmmaker, which is when you Google HP Lovecraft-inspired films, it's one of the first that pops up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is The Thing, a 19... 19- Whoa. Was <laughs> Sorry, rude. I was trying to clap for you, but I'm yeah. leaning on my hand right now. So. Also, you're like, Mike kind of cut out in the middle of it. So <laughs> <laughs> it was like, Woo! Um, Okay, so that is The Thing, 1982, directed by John Carpenter, of course, and starring Kurt Russell, just a Excuse complete me, babe. The, the incomparably sexy Kurt Russell. I mean, if you want to have like a definition of sexy, it's <laughs> Kurt Russell in this movie. <laughs> Uh, start, so sorry, Kurt Russell as J, uh, R.J. McCready, Wilford Brimley, of course, as the scientist oh, Blair. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he, he gets a major case of diabetes in this movie. <laughs> I, I just like the entire time could not stop whispering diabetes to myself. <laughs> T.K. Carter, who plays uh, Nalls, David Clennon, who plays Palmer, and just a bunch of other dudes as well. It's an all-male cast, uh, which shouldn't surprise you considering what ends up happening to them. And an all male crew, if I'm not mistaken. I uh, there was a oh, good yeah. morning. There was a good morning Nancy podcast about the thing recently, where they revealed that I I had never known, but apparently it was an all male crew as well. So. There was nary a woman even breathed in the direction of this entire production. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so the thing is a a faithful adaptation of a film called The Thing from Another World which is a 1951 film directed by Christian Nyby and was actually adapted from a novella, not by H.P. Lovecraft, but by John W. Campbell. The name of that novella was Who Goes There? So that's kind of the background of the thing. It it is H.P. Lovecraft inspired, but it's not based on an H.P. Lovecraft um, Mm -hmm. short story. So in case you haven't seen the thing, which I feel like everyone has, but in case you haven't, it is a film about a group of researchers in the Antarctic? Yeah. Yeah, Antarctica, correct. Okay, in, in, in Antarctica. Um, it's a group of American um, researchers and kind of the crew that comes along with these researchers. And at the beginning of the film, uh, you see like this big husky dog. He's running across the tundra and there's a helicopter following him and like shooting at him. And it, this, I mean, this scene goes on for like five minutes. It's a very long scene. And the entire time you're like, what the fuck is going on? The helicopter lands and the American crew kind of rushes over. And the, um, it's a Norwegian guy 
in the helicopter and he's like shouting frantically in Norwegian, but of course they can't understand them him. And so they take the dog in and I forget what happens to the Norwegian guy. I mean, he's out of the picture. He dies or something like that. And they were like, hmm, that was weird. And so they take the dog in and they decide, Kurt Russell, just babing it up. He has like some sunglasses or something. Mm-hmm. Like he's just Beautiful parka he's wearing. I mean, the hair on this guy is it's just... Ama- how much he he probably brought a whole suitcase full of conditioner down to Antarctica. I I'm guessing. Deeply hope he did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he's uh, the helicopter uh, pilot, and so he and another guy fly over to the site, um, so where these Norwegians were posted up. They were kind of their own little study crew, and they find like this site in the ground where the Norwegians had been digging, and they find this corpse that is indescribable like it it looks like a human but it's not a human it has like two faces it has two faces that are just like like look like they had this person or thing had died in agony and and so they decide to bring it back to do an autopsy uh that's wilford brimley who i believe Mm. who does the autopsy and i mean i feel like it's hard to say kind of what all happens next without spoiling so uh, but i mean this whole discussion is going to be a spoiler because what happens is the hp lovecraft element um Mm -hmm. but basically what what has happened is that the uh husky that came in in the beginning and this corpse that they find contains like this alien species or alien bacteria that takes over a body uh, you know a husky body or like a human body it makes that body or a husky human body or a husky. <laughs> okay, that was, <laughs> and it takes it over. And so this, so the person becomes a doppelganger, but it's not really them anymore. It's actually this alien creature. Mm-hmm. And so you see various people of the crew start to transform into this alien, and they are all, you know, trying to figure out what's going on and who they can trust, like who's still them and who's not them. So that's kind of where a lot of the tension of the film comes from. Um, and they are basically trying to eradicate this this alien being because it Wil- Wilford Brimley does some kind of study and he says he reports back to them like this thing could take over the human race within a matter of, of seconds. Well, that's just, the- yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just about to say because it just spreads incredibly fast. Like if I bled onto the ground and you touched my blood, you know, with an open mm-hmm. wound, then you would be taken over by that alien. Well, I, I think the one of the most terrifying parts of the monster or the alien or whatever it is, is that it operates by tri- by replicating um, whatever it touches. A lot of times imperfectly, there are some real monstrosities in this film. And I have to give props to the special effects because this is probably the best special effects in history. And it was made... How, how long ago? 35 years ago? Yeah. I mean, this is honestly the best spe- like actual non-CGI mm-hmm. special effects you'll ever see. And yeah. Um, But yeah, no, that's the real terrifying part about it is that they are trying to figure out who is the thing. What has the thing taken over at this point, you know, and who can they trust? Right. Um, and I mean, the film really clips along. It takes down. I mean, it's a crew of, I think, like eight to ten guys. It takes mm-hmm. pretty much all of them out until <laughs> at the end. It's just McCready and... Childs. 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 Yeah. yeah. And Childs. And the last scene, I mean, is famous for a reason. I suggest everyone go watch it, but you're left with a feeling of who can you trust? Are they both the thing? Mm -hmm. Will anyone make it out alive? Because you kind of come to find that the Norwegians had figured out, like, we're all dying. We have to die so that this thing won't pass on from us, you know, Mm -hmm. into another living thing. So um, I kind of want to go back to the article that I had quoted from before on The Nerdist. Mm -hmm written by Kyle Anderson, and now I can reveal that it's called John Carpenter's The Thing, <laughs> is, mo- <laughs> is more Lovecraftian than you thought, even though I feel like everyone knows that. But, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. But um, I'm just going to read an stuff. excerpt because it's kind of the Lovecraftian element that I wanted to talk about as it relates to The Thing. When the characters in the base see The Thing at its most alien, at its half-transformed between stages, as you were just describing, they stand in awe, gobsmacked for sometimes minutes at, t- at a time. This is so Carpenter can show off the amazing effects work by Rob Botton, yes, but it's also to amplify a mixture of awe and disgust. 
Lovecraft would often not describe his sinister entities, choosing instead to say simply the indescribable horror or the like, and allow the reader to come up with their own visuals. The inability of humans to comprehend the physical form of these creatures is integral to Lovecraft's cosmic fear, which we had earlier defined. Carpenter continues this, not by hiding the monster from us, but by showing it to us in full light, because even though we're looking at it, it's still mostly indescribable. No image of the thing in any of the scenes behaves the way something of this world would, and we share the character's astonishment both by recoiling and staring. Um, And so that's kind of what I wanted to talk about as it relates to Thing, this idea of kind of indescribable horror and indescribable fear, because I think the Thing remains really relevant because even though i mean at its heart it is amazing special effects but i think in a world of cgi we're we're used to seeing like very well done kind of very um out of this world special effects and when you see the thing you might be like oh that's a little cheesy you know kind of yeah kind of the same as when you see the alien popping out you're like oh you know it looks a little like one thing i always think of is like dead alive like oh yeah (laughs) you know there's just blood and guts everywhere and it was very you know it's just silly it kind of like shows how silly practical effects can be yeah so. so even though but even though it can be a little cheesy and can be a little silly i think describing it as indescribable is really true because on the one hand you're like it's a person it's coming out of a person and it has some human-like characteristics but it it, it's obviously not a person and it moves really weirdly and you can't anticipate like what it's going to do and it's basically the embodiment of the fear of the unknown um and i also think that when something really scares you and i mean at the heart of horror obviously is about feeling scared and everyone has their own different fears but i think at the heart of horror it's very difficult to describe why you're actually scared and to describe Mm -hmm. what it is that's scaring you and i think john carpenter and just was so good at still maintaining a visual of the indescribable you know so you can talk about the thing and you can describe it as best as you can, but you can't still quite pinpoint like why it's scary to you. Well, and you know, when I say that these are the best special effects of all time, and I genuinely believe that. I mean, practical effects are have their limitations, but these are genuinely the best practical effects you'll ever see. It's not just like the effects, it's the design of these creatures. I mean, I am fully convinced that before these creatures were put on screen, no human being had thought of that what you're seeing like oh it's totally unique it's i mean one good example that's easy to describe to people is um at one point in the film another doctor who's not wilford brimley at this point wilford brimley has uh kind of lost his mind a little bit which is another very lovecraftian response to you know fear of the unknown but another doctor is trying to save one of his crewmates by doing the um what do you call those uh when you um the The jaws of life the oh the no um, yeah, when he's trying to... Uh, Electroshocks you know, or something. Electro, yeah, when he's trying to... You know, when you... People will know what I'm talking about. I wish I was... Uh, I had, My girlfriend's a nurse, and I probably should know this, but when, you know, when, some, when you're trying to resuscitate someone and you shock them in the chest, he's, he's trying to do that. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the chest opens up with jaws, and his hands fall in, and his, you know, his hands get eaten. And that is, like, the most describable of all the special effects. And who thinks of something like that i mean it's so outlandish and so outrageous and so terrifying Uh, and when you're watching it you're like did that just happen and literally every interaction with the thing which again is an interaction with a character that you knew previously who has been completely changed every interaction with the thing uh, at least the first time you watch this film is something that you could never imagine and i think you know this movie is just so unique because again you're seeing things on screen that no human brain had ever imagined before because these creatures are indescribable and so outlandish i mean you know there are certain features that the creature always has it almost has like spider legs it has those weird whips uh there are certain features that are uh present in each iteration of the thing but each time you see it again and again it's always something new and something you could never think of um so Another thing I wanted to talk about with this movie is the all-male cast and Mm -hmm. I guess the all-male crew based on a a style of work by a man. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I remember texting you, I said, I was like, if there had been only one woman, maybe they would have made it out alive. (laughs) Um, 
I mean, I, I was being facetious, but it's also, you know, the movie has, to me, um, as a woman, has a very male energy in the sense that it's very much like, let's fight this now and Things think about it later. Things break down pretty quickly. Yeah, because they don't yeah. really take the time to say, like, hmm, what would be the best way to, like, approach it? They're all kind of, like, macho men uh, in a very real sense of the world, word. Again, except for the Wilford Brimley character, who's kind of the quintessential H.P. Lovecraft anti-hero in that mm-hmm. he literally goes mad at the sight of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also noticed in the film that, you know, a lot of the fear in the film comes from not knowing whether or not the other characters have turned into the thing. So they are very afraid of the non-uniqueness of their selves and of, you know, turning into a doppelganger. And I also thought that that was just like a very... You know, it's a fear of not being special and it's a fear of not being, you know, of someone else like overtaking your humanity, which is, again, kind of a Lovecraftian theme of uh of someone taking over your humanity. Um, But I think I feel like that feeling was just amplified by all of the men again because i just feel like mm. when you get a group of men together they're, they're always so trying to macho. one up yeah. yeah they're they're trying to one up each other and they're trying to prove like who's the strongest who's the coolest who's the funniest mm-hmm. and they have that energy going before this threat of the thing even comes in and it kind of just to me amplifies that feeling of fear of loss of humanity because mm-hmm. these are men who are very attached to their own uniqueness and I, that I, I, that's a great point because there's, I, I, this is the, when I watch it for this podcast, this is about, this is the fifth time that I've watched this film. So, and I feel like it only gets better and better every time I watch it, which is very, people say that all the time, but that's actually very, very rare when you watch a film, if you're being honest. Like, it's very oh, yeah. rare. A film actually gets better the second or third. But it's true for this film because I notice things uh, every time. And this, uh, I was so, blown away by the scene where the Kurt Russell's character McCready figures out if you take a hot wire to someone's blood, you can figure out if they're the thing or not. And one of the most remarkable things about that scene is that when he's testing Childs's blood, they shoot to Childs and he's like sweating. He's like, he doesn't know if he's the thing. And, you know, they test it and it turns out Childs is not the thing. But I thought I'd never noticed that before. He's actually scared because he thinks, well, what if I don't know if I've lost my humanity? And I thought that is like a quintessential Lovecraftian fear because have I lost my mind? Do I know that I'm uh, myself? And I think tied into what you're saying about this, you know, fragile masculinity, you want to think that you have, you know, as a man, you want to think you have control over everything all the time. And he doesn't know, he doesn't know if he's become a thing. And I, again, that's something I had never noticed before when I'd watched this film. And I thought it was so brilliant. And, um, you know, it's a great way that he mixes this, you know, message of masculinity and this this lovecraftian aspect into it also i just i don't know i still can't get over in a like cast of literally like 12 people there was not one woman yeah well the women <laughs> women just can't handle antarctica apparently i that's mean that's not the true. message of the film <laughs> that's not true i read an Anne rule book about a woman who killed her husband granted <laughs> but she was an antarctic researcher so oh, she's up there okay. i'm just saying you okay. know <laughs> thank you Anne rule thank you thank you Anne um, rule for shedding light on the important issue of women in antarctica <laughs> <laughs> well um before we get off the thing though i did want to bring up one other point about the thing and i thought why love Lovecraft has been adapted to modern times and how it has been adapted to modern times. I thought it was really interesting that a lot of the horror and the tension of this film doesn't come from the thing itself, but it's the fear, what the fear of the unknown does to these characters. And as I was watching this film, I thought about Lovecraft's fear of the unknown, his fear of other cultures and his fear of like immigrants and things like that. This film kind of takes the logical next step and shows kind of the absurd, what that fear does to human beings, the absurdity of that fear and the fear of the unknown the fear of black and brown people like made lovecraft a horrible person and he didn't have you know the self-reflection to realize that and imbue that in his characters the thing does that these guys once they have this fear of the thing they become total assholes towards one another at one point in the film mccready is holding a stick of dynamite and threatening to blow up the whole place and kill everyone i mean these guys are but not... But, like, don't part of you, like, wish that he would do it? Like, yeah, I mean, they were acting like assholes towards him, let's be fair. I mean, the but... hair was still looking good, but he was not acting like a, a gentleman at that point. No. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think this film takes that logical next step. It's like, yes, there is this fear of the unknown, but we still have to act humanely. And I think what you're saying about the fact that it's an all-male cast 
kind of heightens that a little bit. You know, these guys are so macho and so like, you know, let's act now, let's do something now. Like they just allow themselves to just be driven to this state where, again, mm-hmm. only two of them are left at. You know, yeah. this movie occurs over one night, and there's two guys left they after one. night. They very quickly work themselves into a frenzy. Yeah. yeah so. Um, but yeah, uh, those are the, the two main themes I wanted to talk about with the thing. Um, I think a film this famous obviously has multiple, multiple think pieces and multiple, multiple mm-hmm. takes on it, all of which I see. This is the first time I have watched the thing with an eye for HP Lovecraftian themes. And those are the two main themes I noticed. But I would love to hear our listeners' uh, mm-hmm. opinions, their takes on the thing, what they think it's about what they think, you know, what what their major takeaways are from it. I think that there's another thing to be said about the fact that one of our heroes, the one of the ones who makes it to the end, Childs, is a black man. He's a person mm-hmm. of color, which mm-hmm. is extra ironic if you consider how racist H.P. Lovecraft was. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I've seen some interpretations of the thing that take that into account that I was very interested in. Again, we didn't really have time to obviously talk about every single theme of the thing, but I think it's one of those movies where every time you watch it, you can take away something, something Absolutely. different. I mean, there's also... Um, you know, a lot. There's a lot of think pieces that take into account the all male cast and crew, and how the film is a commentary on toxic masculinity, a commentary on homophobia as well. I mean, this we could have like a three hour podcast just talking about the thing. But so tune in is, next week for the first episode of our The Thing. Podcast. <laughs> yeah, our first of twelve episodes on the thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, great film. I mean, the yeah. thing is just a bona fide horror classic. I mean, John yeah. Carpenter made. Halloween, The Fog, The Thing, and Christine in five years. I mean, that's just incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I guess this is slowly morphing into a John Carpenter podcast where we will only be covering films by John Carpenter. I mean, he's he's just incredible. I mean, he really is the greatest. But um, anyway, so yeah, let's uh, let's move on to my film then. Uh, My film is significantly less popular, significantly less well-known. I wouldn't say significantly less good, but definitely not as good as The Thing. But it is Abstentia, uh, directed by Mike Flanagan, uh, the 2011 film. And, of course, Mike Flanagan is very well known now for doing uh, Haunting of Hill House. He made the adaptation of Gerald's Game in 2016. He made Hush in 2006. Gerald's Game 2017, Hush in 2016. Um, Trying to think what his other filmography is. But Abstentia is his first film, and it stars pretty little-known actors and actresses. Um, Courtney Bell, who plays the main character, Trisha. Katie Parker, who plays her sister, Callie. And Dan Levine, who plays uh, Daniel, who is the person who is in absentia in this film. So this film is uh, very... It's very low budget. It's shot it's what seems to be like on video or something like that. But it is very, very like interesting and mysterious. And basically the plot is is that, you know, when you open up the film, there's this woman, Trisha, she's pregnant and she's putting up posters around town for, you know, her partner, her husband. And um, her sister comes to visit her. And we are find out the reason her sister is coming to visit her is because her husband has been missing for seven years and her sister is coming to help her fill out paperwork to declare him dead uh, in absentia, which is, uh, you know, apparently I'm a lawyer and I didn't know this, but apparently after seven years, you can declare someone dead, essentially. So, yeah, I knew that because I watch a lot of true crime documentaries uh, and people who like kill their spouses try to get them declared dead. In you have to be pretty patient to wait seven, seven years. You can, I think that you can uh, expedite the process. Oh, okay. Even without, like, a well, I'm not saying that's what Denise Williams did in Tallahassee. Oh, she yes, correct. Declared dead, yeah. Even though he wasn't dead because she had gotten her new husband. Her new boo. It's a long yeah. story. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so the sister is visiting and kind of plot, minor plot point, but her sister is a recovering addict, a uh, recovering heroin addict, and is, you know, seeing the opportunity to kind of get back into her normal life, get connected with her family again. And so they're, they're you know, getting reacquainted, getting to know each other again. Uh, one morning, the sister goes out on a run, and um, part of her run includes going through a tunnel, and she sees this guy who she thinks is a homeless guy. He's really pale. His hair's really disheveled. And he's like, you know, you can see me? Like, what's, you know, you can see me? Can you get me help, get my son? And she's like, I'm sorry. I'll come back and bring you food later. And she just runs away. And later, she comes and brings him food, but doesn't see him. So she leaves it at the entrance of the tunnel. And uh, the next morning she finds like, you know, the food all gone and all these um, trinkets 
there too and she just kind of ignores it one night she returns back to the home and there's again all these trinkets on her bed and so they call the cops blah 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 and um one of the cops that turns up is as it turns out the cop is um dating trisha the pregnant woman and so you find out okay that's how she got pregnant so apparently you know She's trying to move on in her life and everything like that. She's booed up She's again. booed up again. She's trying to move on with her life. <laughs> One day she decides, okay, I'm going to go out on a date with this guy. And so I, I felt so bad for her. As soon as she walks out the door, she sees – and I, I didn't explain this. Like, again, she's going through this process of declaring him dead in essentia, but she's seeing him everywhere. She's seeing, like, a ghost of him, what it appears like. And there's a lot of creepy jump scares that are at this part, but – they go outside, they walk outside to go on their date, and she sees him. She's like, okay, this is just another instance of, you know, he's just, it's just a, a imagination. But it's, as it turns out, her boyfriend, the cop, sees him as well and is like, oh, shit, he, he's here. Uh, there he is. And so the guy returns home. He's not, he's not, he is returned. He's not dead. But upon his return, he keeps on talking about this just kind of weird shit and he has like a the doctor says he has an ill-defined mass in his stomach he looks very malnourished and daniel's saying weird things like i was underneath and when he's returning home from the hospital he looks at the tunnel that the sister had walked through and he starts pissing his pants and he's very afraid of the tunnel and it's just all sorts of just weird he seems like he's been through an ordeal that's kind of where you know the story really takes off in here and you know at, at at a certain point in the film she the woman finally does go on her date with this cop and the sisters left home to watch daniel and she has a relapse and, and takes drugs and daniel ends up disappeared again and it seems as though some weird like creature has taken him the the sister says yeah some weird creature took him the cops come and is like oh you're high like you don't know what you're talking about he must have just run away again at a certain point in the film we find out that the woman that um, Callie, the sister, had seen in the tunnel has found has wound up dead in, in front of the tunnel. And um, as the film goes along more and more, the main character, Trisha, is looking for Daniel again. She ends up disappeared. The cops bring in Callie, like, what did you do to your sister? Like, what's going on? Callie ends up disappeared. And that's kind of the film ends right, ends right there. That's a very cursory... I tried to go through that as best as I could. Uh, well, and I, it's been a long time since I watched mm-hmm. this film, but it's a confusing kind of film. It's like, I do remember being like, so. I thought. Yeah, I remember being like, so wait, I, what happened to her? I thought that, you know, and then the, I remember when the husband comes back, that kind of throws you off because you're like, well, that's not exact, that's not what you expected at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I will say, I did think the idea of a loved one going missing, especially for such a long period of time. There's a part at the beginning of the film where she's imagining, like, what happened to him. She's, like, imagining, was he actually a secret agent and he had to leave on a mission? He just hasn't returned yet. Did he get kidnapped? Having a family member going missing, obviously, none of us have ever had that happen, really. But that is the ultimate fear of the unknown. Not knowing what has happened to your loved one is the ultimate fear of the unknown. And there's multiple times throughout the film where, again, when Daniel disappears again... When Trisha disappears and Callie is being interrogated by the police, like there's multiple times throughout this film where characters are grappling with like what the hell happened. I mean, do we take what Daniel's saying at face value that he was taken underground, that he was taken into this tunnel and taken underground into an underground city by some unknown creature? Do we take that at face value or is he is he running away like as everybody thinks he is? And the same thing with Trisha, like Callie says she was taken by this creature or, you know, the cop responds by saying, no, you had some drug debt, like you were getting drugs and now she's gotten wrapped up in it. I mean, the film is admittedly weak at some parts. I mean, it's not shot very well. The story is a little bit confusing, but there's a lot of shots to like missing persons posters and police stations. And there's a lot of parts of the film where you have characters wondering what happened to other characters and imagining different scenarios. And I thought this film did a really great job of kind of encapsulating what it must feel like to have a loved one lost and you have no idea what's happened to them or what's going on with them. And I think H.P. Lovecraft's works, and this is kind of embodied by this like tunnel, this underground city, this creature that lives in this underground city. And I think H.P. Lovecraft's works does a really, is a really good proxy for this fear that a lot of people 
are unfortunately have to experience a fear of like, what the hell happened to, um, you know, to my loved one. So I thought this was a really good film at kind of, it's a really great way to take, you know, H.P. Lovecraft's ideas. And, and, you know, again, this film was made in 2011 and adapt them to modern times. Another theme that I really picked up from, from this film was the fear of not being believed. Mm -hmm. Like, I know I saw this. I know this is what happened, but this person is telling me that I'm imagining it. This person is telling me that I'm just on drugs. Um, I think that that's a fear. You know, we talked about a little bit with our review of Unsane in our top 10 of 2018 uh, reviews that that is a fear that is predominant, especially among women. Mm -hmm. And of course, this film is primarily about two Mm -hmm. women. Um, It's kind of like the fear of being gaslit or the fear of not being believed. And and also, you know, when people say that stuff to you, it makes you second guess. Did I really see that? Did that really happen to me? And I think that that plays into this, you know, I think it plays into the fear of the unknown, but it's also kind of its own separate thing that I think Mike Flanagan was really digging into Mm -hmm. in this movie. When I first watched this film, I was like, hmm, I'm not a a huge fan of it, but since I've gone on and seen more of Mike Flanagan's works, Mm -hmm. which... I mean, to my recollection, almost like exclusively star women or feature women. It's just very interesting, you know, kind of his perspectives that play into the film, into his films. Um, But they are very like sensitive, I think, to like fears that are particular uh, to women. And I think that this is a good example of that one, because this is like two women who are, are trying to kind of rectify things that have happened to them. And they are constantly coming up against like, you're wrong or this is not going to be resolved the way you want it to be resolved. And I, I mean, now looking back, I'm like, this is a pretty solid first oh, yeah. work from him. And it's indicative of things that are to Yeah, come, and I think you know? um, one of the themes of all of his films, you think of Gerald's Game, where you have a woman handcuffed to a bed. You think of Hush, where you have a deaf woman being stalked by someone. So those films, a lot of Mike Flanagan's films, Hounding at Hill House has a lot of this too. There's a lot of vulnerability, especially by female characters. A lot of like, you can really relate to the vulnerability of the characters and in this film it's not an actual it's not like a physical thing that's occurring to them it's very psychological like there's a lot of vulnerability and mm-hmm. not knowing and a lot of vulnerability and not being believed uh for the character of Callie who's just kind of dismissed for being on drugs all the time and for Trisha for just not knowing and not having any real idea of what happened to her husband the last thing I'll say about this film is that I think it's very crucial that the film never takes a solid perspective on what is actually occurring here. I mean, there's a lot of shifting perspective, or you can view it as being a lot of shifting perspectives, because as viewers, we see kind of like wings and like weird, we never see a full on shot of like the monster. But it could very well be that we're just getting this from the perspective of these two vulnerable characters. It could be in reality, people are just running away. I mean, we never get a sense for what exactly is going on. And that kind of makes us like the characters. Ultimately, we don't know what's actually happening. Just like, you know, at the beginning of the film, you know, Trisha doesn't know exactly what happened to her husband. So I thought it was a really interesting perspective in providing no real perspective, I guess. And I thought that was really smart. Mm -hmm. And again, um, this isn't a perfect film. Again, it's, you know, there's some bad dialogue, some bad acting, you know, the, the film used is a little, shitty you know it's not a easy film to watch but i think if you're a mike flanagan fan if you are a fan of hush um or any of those works that i mentioned this is like a great look at how he began to develop his style and i thought yeah again i can um, i can imagine this is very you know triggering to someone who has had a family member who's been lost i think it's a very the film does a great job of making you feel a lot of empathy for these characters so i I yeah, I totally agree. I think definitely if you're a Mike Flanagan fan, this is a must watch if if only because you want to watch all of his mm-hmm. films. Um, I think it's still available on Netflix. Yep. And I know a lot of people who are very big fans of it. I think, you know, as someone who enjoys films with not particular resolutions, you know, films that can be interpreted several different ways. This is a good example Absolutely. of that as well. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. yeah. So Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, actually kind of. Merging out of, you know, normally after we discuss our films that we picked for the topic, we just move on to like what we've watched recently. But I know of a film that we both watched recently that I read an article about how it is Lovecraftian. Do you want to guess what that film is? don't want to ruin it for the listeners. I think I know what you're talking about. Can I just confirm that I knew what you were talking about once you say it? 
so I can pretend like I no. knew about it all along. <laughs> no, you've. I know you've watched this film. We is it Bird Box? It. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Why? <laughs> or you? You're so concerned. I just about want to be right. Wrong. Okay. Like, I want to be right. You're like one of the cast members in the thing. <laughs> it's so okay. Well, I just Bird Box. I feel like. If you haven't seen Bird Box, you've heard of Bird Box. It's been all over Buzzfeed. You've seen the memes. I know you bitches are all reading You've seen the memes. You've seen the memes about how that guy stayed so fit during the apocalypse. (laughs) Sandra Bullock kept her makeup perfect during the apocalypse. (laughs) Well, Sandra Bullock can't not look perfect. I mean, that's just her face. So this this article, uh, I think it's from QZ.com, written by Adam Epstein, called Bird Box Taps into a Lovecraftian Horror Tradition Rising from the Deep. So this is about... You know, obviously Bird Box is kind of like the biggest hit. I read something like based on the views that it it got on Netflix. If those had been ticket sales, it would have outsold Aquaman. Okay. Sound familiar? Cosmic horror is at the root of Bird Box, which essentially marries the basic premise of Dagon with the apocalyptic scale of Nyarlathotep. Thank you. Based on the book by Josh Mailerman, the Netflix film follows a new mother, Sandra Bullock, as she attempts to navigate a world in which people immediately go nuts and kill themselves upon seeing unknown creatures. In in order to avoid that awful fate, they are forced to blindfold themselves whenever whenever venturing outdoors. Some might argue that Bird Box is actually Lovecraftian light and employs many of the cosmic tropes that Lovecraft's work is famous for, but in a decidedly more optimistic story that resists the other utter hopelessness that define the co- author's cosmic philosophy. And then the literal next sentence is Lovecraft is known today as a racist, xenophobic, <laughs> anti-Semite. Yay. So that's kind of that's kind of where that article. Yeah, that's kind of where that article goes. But you know, it's funny that we watched this film like right before. Mm-hmm. You know, we had already decided to do this episode when this film really blew up and you can definitely definitely i mean it's a very obvious well the creatures thing. are like formless yeah. you know i mean you don't ever see the forms of these creatures you never which see is them. very lovecraftian yeah you never see them and it to to see them literally makes you go mad and then there's these other characters that love the creature they're like obsessed with it and they are you know obsessed with making other people look at it uh, that was the most intriguing aspect of the film to me. I mean, overall, I, it was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Bird Box was written before A Quiet Place came out, but it's really hard not to compare yeah. them for me. And and although I liked Bird Box, I felt like it lacked kind of the emotional punch of A Quiet mm-hmm. Place. And it also, you know, it's kind of a paint-by-numbers horror movie to me, even though it had obviously great actors and stuff in it. But I did think the most intriguing part of the film were these people who were they were like sycophants you know. or something yeah it was like you know they were like cultists for this thing it was almost as if this thing was a god mm. and they were trying to like recruit people and and feed this monster with other people's lives well, by forcing them to look that's at what it. i was yeah. most confused about the film i wish there was more a lot i mean i thought this was a pretty solid film like i'd give it like a 6.5 or a 7 or something out of 10 but i was wanting to know more about these people do they is are they people that see the creature and are chosen to be like you know worshipers of them because obviously they see the creature and are not dying i wanted to know more about that because i thought they would go go somewhere with that so unlike in a quiet place where there are monsters that just hunt you based on like if you make a noise so that makes sense but in in bird box seeing the monster makes you want to kill yourself like, so the monsters don't kill people. You kill yourself when you see the monster. So my interpretation was these people just lacked whatever it was that made you want to kill yourself. Gotcha. And to me, I I guess maybe I read that as like, maybe these are people that like lack basic empathy, or maybe these are people who are like psychopaths in some kind of way. You know, I'm not really sure, but that's kind of where I thought. But I feel like that storyline didn't go as far as I would have wanted it to go because to me, the ultimate Lovecraftian theme is in the end, like it's actually like people who are kind of the scariest and it's like people who ultimately end up being the worst to you. And so I thought that these sycophants were the ones that were going to eventually like yeah, harm people, yeah. you know, themselves. But yeah, I mean... Overall, I thought it was pretty good. I don't know why it's so hyped, yeah. except for maybe just the yeah, memes. Yeah, the memes are really good, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so that's probably... Meme culture just rules us all, but... I was going to ask you, what else you've been watching? Uh, I've, well, now that I've finally moved in, I've finally been able to like sit down and watch a few few more films. I was going to try and watch Incident on Ghostland this week. I just didn't fit it in. I'll probably watch it. 
Um, tonight, the director of Martyrs had a new film last year that I overlooked. Definitely want to watch I cannot that, yeah. wait to watch that. But I watched, I finally got around to watching uh, Terrified this week, the Argentinian horror film that came oh. out last week. How was it? It was really good. I was finally pushed to watch it because of people's top 10 lists, particularly one of our faves, Dr. Shock. Um, came, DC yeah, Shock. He yeah, he called it number one uh, best horror film of 2018. Um, I didn't quite think it was at that level, but it definitely was something that made me like kind of regret not watching all of these films I had put on my backlog before. I, it definitely would have made my top uh, 10 list. It it was such yeah. an interesting film, and there's so much going on in it. It's a paranormal film. It's like a monster film. There's some real-life horror in it. And then there's like three threads of the film that come together to kind of make this awesome ending, too. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend you watch it for sure. I mean, it's totally worth your time. Again, it's called... Um, terrified it's an argentinian horror film and uh it's on shutter it's uh, another another reason yes. to kind of um again shutter i know yeah, you're listening please, please sponsor we us. need this so bad but um we have no income no from this zero podcast. yeah in fact we're losing yeah. money on i had it, to so. get these nice you see me wearing these nice headphones on video i know i look the cans. I look great. Yeah. Those cost money. Yeah, you look amazing. But um, yeah. there's a few more. I'm gonna, In the next few weeks, I'm going to kind of go back and watch some 2018 films that I missed. I have Incident on Ghostland. Um, Mon Mon Monsters, the Taiwanese horror film. I've been hearing hyped up a lot on these lists. So I want, 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 want to watch it. I just that, love so. the title. I got to watch it. <laughs> it's so <good. laughs> um, But there's a few <laughs> other films that I'm sure I'll be talking about in the coming weeks. I'm trying to, as I try and you know, go through my 2018 backlog, but I'm also, there's a lot of great 2019 films coming out that I'm really looking forward to as well. Yeah. I mean, we watched the us trailer. I mean, I've seen it probably a billion times. I'm very excited for that. (laughs) (laughs) Just like slowing down. (laughs) I've never, I haven't, I've listened to that song since that trailer came out and I kind of like side eyed it, you know, I haven't actually seen any uh, horror films uh, since our last record because I have been very obsessed. I am not a binge watcher of TV. I just can't sit down for three hours at a time and watch TV. Like, it's just not my thing. I'm too, like, jumpy. I want to get up and do other things. That being said, I watched the Netflix show You in a week. Okay. Yes. Have you heard of this? That's another one that's been hyped on Netflix recently. I've seen... It's worth the hype. It's very good. I had actually read the book that it's based on. I Well, I listened to it on audiobook. Um, the narrator of the audiobook was really good. The TV show is very, um, it stays true to the story. Um, it's about a guy. It's The whole thing is told from his perspective. And the you in question is this woman that he's obsessed with. He meets her in the bookshop where he works and he proceeds to stalk her and kind of manipulate her into dating him. You know, he steals her phone and reads her text messages, so he always knows where she is and all this kind of stuff. And what I like about the book that is more clear in the TV show is that it very obviously plays on romantic comedy Mm -hmm. tropes. So things that play out in romantic comedies that you're supposed to think is, like, cute, like, oh, he showed up at my place of work when I wasn't expecting it. That's not romantic. That's fucking creepy, you know, and and Joe does stuff like that. And in the book, um, he very obviously says, like, you know, in a romantic comedy, this would be seen as as being loving. But instead, like, I'm just creepy for doing, you know, insert creepy thing here. So it's a really good TV show. I think there's a lot of things to be said, though, from the fact that it's told entirely from this male psychopath's point of view. Um, I think the main female character who plays his love interest slash, you know, object of obsession has said, like, you know, she says, obviously, it's not a a TV show that is fair to women and in a world where women are, con- you know, continually victimized, it can be tiring to con- then consume media about women who are victimized. But that being said, I do think that the show is very obvious. Like this guy is a creep. Yeah. Here's how his creepy mind works. So then I really don't understand this um, internet trend of saying that he is sexy and desirable. Yeah, I really I've think that. that- yeah. I saw this like BuzzFeed article today. It got posted in a horror group I belong to on Facebook about like, if you think Joe from you is sexy, you're not alone. And I'm like, uh, but you should, <laughs> you be, should because... be the only one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, like I've ne- I've always been someone like the extent to which you're attractive is only so much as you have a good personality. Mm-hmm. Like I really, you know, and so to me, it's like as soon as he opens his mouth or, you know, narrates his mind, you should be like, oh, actually, no, he's yeah. not attractive. Also, 
his name is like Penn Badgley or something like that. The actor, he's very skinny and awkward looking to me. So I, I really don't get That's more one it, for producer whatever. Natalie, I think. Yeah. 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 Producer Natalie might find, I think he was on um, like the OC or some show, Gossip Girl, oh. maybe some show like that. True. Yeah. yeah. True. Yeah, true. Anyway, if if anyone is hesitating to watch you, though, I I mean, it's very it's not a horror show per se, but I definitely think it would be of interest um, to horror fans because it's it's a psychological thriller, horror adjacent, yeah. It's horror a horror PSA, yeah, horror PSA. Uh, <laughs> the guys at H- before um, before we get going, though, do you want to tell our listeners our exciting news? Listeners, you finally emailed us. Thank you so much. We had I, <laughs> we two emails two this week. Emails. Not just from Colin, but... Well, Colin didn't even yeah. email us this week. It's two different people emailed us. Yeah, Colin, what's up? Like, we Colin, come on, bro. Me. What the hell? Come on, bro. <laughs> so uh, the one I want to highlight is someone that we don't know. <sighs> so exciting. It's just like... I know. It's a non-friend listener. Um, Amanda W., who is our first Iowa listener. Thank you, Amanda. We love Iowa. Um, she, we love Iowa. Never been there, but I bet <laughs> I'm it's sure so. I love it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure I love it. So uh, she gave some feedback about some of our episodes, uh, had some opinions. Uh, we were talking shit about Bird Box without uh, having actually watched it. <laughs> By the way, half <laughs> of Amanda was about half happy. of my shit talk remains, but <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> but anyway, Amanda, or they say, uh, anyways, just was going to email no matter what and just say that this podcast is absolutely great. Uh, however, Curtis, you have to get your shit together and get some notes. Well, that's what Amanda said. Not it's interesting you chose to read Amanda that part did. of the email because I thought the bird box conversation would have been interesting. But no. Okay. I'll let you know. You can look at my notes. There's a full page here. And plus I read. Amanda, he does I, have Plus notes. I read multiple <laughs> articles in preparation. I'll tell you that much. And then our friend Alex W. sent us a very long email. Alex, you need to pay attention when you're in lab. Maybe use some like punctuation too. Stuff. Whoa. Oh, damn. Yikes. Uh, She gave us some really great feedback, including that she likes the little different segments we have and that we do a really good job of keeping the conversation going and sounding natural, even though Taylor's voice doesn't. So, what is that supposed to mean? That I have a loud voice. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. (laughs) Um, But anyway, you can tell how excited we get when we get emails. So, if you have any feedback about. Lovecraftian horror or anything else that we've covered on the show, including if you have some ideas about future themes that we could cover on Ah Real Films, please feel free to give us an email. We are ahhrealfilms at gmail.com. And as you can tell, we will read your email out. We'll read, on the show. I mean, I, if we start getting like 100 emails a week, we'll still read every single one. These episodes will be we'll three just hours have a special long. Email. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if you want to follow us on social media, Curtis. Why don't you give them our social media Sure. Channels? Yeah, this is the most difficult thing to do, so I'll do it. Um, and Anyway, <laughs> on Instagram, we're Ah Real Films, like the podcast, A-H-H-R-E-A-L Films on Instagram. And on Twitter, because of my mishap, we are A-H-H-R-E-E-L Films on Twitter. And um, please, I, I run the Twitter. It is my baby. Um as you can tell, it has about 30 followers. Please follow me on Twitter. I need I need that Twitter clout, so please follow us on Twitter. But also and Instagram if you want to. I mean, I guess. Shout out to my 130 <laughs> Instagram followers. You guys are killing it. Um, really appreciate all the love that we have uh, on all of our posts over there. We have a good uh, yeah, time. I'm like begging people to follow our Twitter. You're like, oh, my, my Instagram followers, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're all listening, so... Um, But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. We have another great episode coming up in two weeks. Uh, I don't think we're going to be revealing uh, our next themes because I like to try to play a game where I try to get people Mm -hmm. to guess them. No one has ever guessed it. Um, Very few people have even tried to guess, as a matter of fact. But that's another (laughs) thing. Actually, zero. (laughs) Zero people. (laughs) But I'm like, we like to do a little fun thing over on the Instagram. (laughs) We like to imagine people guessing what our episodes will be. Well, we have to set ourselves up for greatness later on when we have thousands exactly. of listeners. Exactly. When we th- have thousands saying, I'm of... I'm trying to lay the foundation. When we have so many hashtag fans, we can't even count them. We need to be ready. But we still will be reading all of your Exactly. Out on exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, thanks everyone for listening and see you Bye. next time, germs.